Chapter 26 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 26. Art and Intelligence in the 4th Century. Part 1. Art. Value of Art for an Appreciation of Greek History. For an appreciation of Greek history, the great value of art lies in the fact that it is a genuine expression of Hellenic character, not merely of the great static essentials, but also of the more delicate variations from age to age. Some of the forces at work in reshaping the art of the 4th century were political. Lacking imperial revenues, the Athenian state was poorer than in the age of Pericles, and could spend proportionally less on decorative works. The social democracy, too, in Athens as elsewhere, required a considerable share of the public income for the direct benefit of the masses. Individualism in Art These facts help account for the construction of great stone theaters and stadia in various Hellenic cities to the detriment of temple building. Many of the wealthy class preferred to spend their income on the erection and maintenance of more commodious and attractive dwellings, on funerary monuments or sculptured portraits of themselves and their kin. The growing individualism of art may be traced partly to these private enterprises, but far more to the general trend of education. With the enlargement of knowledge, the individual became freer from state, society, and tradition, and more conscious of his separate existence. This mental growth, in and out of philosophy, was accompanied by introspection, an inquiry into the nature of the individual, a study of the personality and of its character and modes of expression. Phaedius, it has been said, gave the statue a soul, or more concretely, endowed the marble with thought and feeling. This inner being, however, was not a personal but a communal aspiration. History had to await a Praxiteles and a Scopus for an expression of the transitory thought and feeling of the individual. Praxiteles by mechanical criteria, it is usually possible to distinguish Praxitelian art from that of earlier times. A standing figure of the preceding century was essentially erect, any curve being a mere deviation from the vertical. A Praxitelian statue, however, usually leans against a tree trunk or other support, which is thus made a part of the sculpture. By such means, too, the curve becomes an essential rather than an accidental feature. The need of a prop is due to the use of marble in place of bronze. Equally tangible is the difference in the treatment of drapery. Whereas in the preceding century the dress fell in sharply outlined parallel folds, in the Praxitelian drapery the greater folds vary in direction and in prominence, and pass into one another through smaller curves. The treatment of the hair undergoes a corresponding change. In the Phaedian period, the short hair of men lay flat on the head, running in parallel lines and terminating in crisp curls. That of Praxiteles is wrought throughout in fluffy locks. The surface of the body, too, is rendered with a natural elasticity equaled in no other extant sculpture. All these external features are due to a more careful study of texture, whether of cloth, hair, or human flesh, and to an advancing technique. Hermes of Praxiteles. 
The soul of a Praxitelian statue, however, we can recognize but can explain in no mechanical way. The body has a restful attitude. The person seems happy, musing, content with himself and the world. The only extant original statue is a mutilated Hermes found in an excavation at Olympia. On his left arm he holds the infant Dionysus. With his right hand he raises high a bunch of grapes or other object to amuse the child. Hermes is not looking at Dionysus, however, but at some object beyond, momentarily lost in pleasant thought. A youth in splendid athletic training and accustomed to activity, he is for the time being in repose. All the technical qualities above described this statue represents to perfection. It is a noteworthy fact, too, that in viewing this piece of art we forget that we are looking upon a god, for we can regard him as only a perfect human youth. The striving of Hellenic genius for individuality, thus displayed, in no way tended toward the elevation of man to divinity, but achieved instead the reduction of God to the human plane. Far from stealing the will to endurance or to heroic effort, it encouraged pleasant relations with the deity and a quiet contentment with life. This was in brief the prevailing spirit of Athens in the middle of the 4th century within the lifetime of Praxiteles. Aphrodite of Nidus his most famous woman statue is the Aphrodite of Nidus, of which we have but a Roman copy. The attitude of musing is Praxitelian, but all the finer qualities of the original were lost in copying. It is extremely unfortunate that we are obliged to depend almost wholly upon poor Roman copies for our acquaintance with the works of the greatest sculptors. Because of the inferior medium of contact, we are in no position to appreciate the extraordinary enthusiasm aroused by the original of this Aphrodite. Scopas. An artist of equal genius was Scopas. Though he flourished during the first half of the 4th century and was therefore older than Praxiteles, it is customary to treat of him later because he seems to us to represent a wider departure from the Phaedian type and a nearer approach to Hellenistic art. Like Praxiteles, he wrought in marble. The only originals that we can in all probability assign to him are two badly mutilated heads from a temple in Tegea, which he is known to have constructed. In contrast with the quiet musing of the Praxitelian statue, that of Scopas is all feeling, passion, expressed primarily by the face and in a less degree by the attitude of the body. The eye is sunken deeply beneath the brow and the surrounding flesh. From this shadow it gazes fixedly on a definite object. The nostrils are dilated, and the mouth, partly open, seems to indicate panting. The body is tense. The whole person is wrought up to a high pitch of anger, fear, or other passion. These qualities are all discoverable in his Meliager, through the extant Roman copies. Though a Perean, Scopus lived for a time at Athens, and we can discover his spirit in the contemporary youths of Athenian grave reliefs, not only in the shadowy eyes, but also in the intensity of the general expression. Lysippus. A further advance was made in the latter half of the same century by Lysippus of Sicyon, who is said to have wrought 1,500 statues, all in bronze. He is best represented by an excellent copy of his Apoxiomenus. It is an athlete engaged in scraping the oil and sand from his body after a contest in wrestling. And from this circumstance the statue has derived its name. Although the copy is in marble, it well expresses all the admirable qualities of the original bronze. 
we notice in the first place its wide departure from the polycletan canon in the proportions of the body. The work of Lysippus has a smaller head and is taller and slimmer. Another noteworthy fact is that whereas the Dorophorus of Polycletus is to be seen from the front only, and hence is comparatively flat with the sides nearly at right angles, the work of Lysippus is to be seen from every direction and is therefore round. In brief, the artist has made an advance from the surface effect of the earlier masters to the effect of roundness and depth. We discover in the earlier work an impression of monumental repose and of collective massive strength, in the latter that of restless abundant vitality, intense energy, and high development of every power. From what has been said, it is clear that the study of Lysippus should proceed from a consideration of Polycletus. He has points of contact also with Praxiteles and Scopus, for his happy spirit recalls the former, his intensity the latter. In the creation of a buoyant joy, he is distinctly original. Portrait Sculpture In no department of art does the growing individualism display itself so clearly as in portrait sculpture. Before the age of Pericles, images even of the most famous men were wholly lacking in realism. Not Miltiades or Themistocles was so detached from his community as to call for an individual memorial of his achievements. The idea appeared but faintly in the Pericles by the artist Cresselus. Yet this Herm represents the typical general and statesman far more than the particular person. During the generation that followed Pericles, however, the interest in eminent men so increased as to bring forth sculptured portraits of notable individuality. The head of Socrates shows his great intellectual power. The face of Euripides reveals deep spirituality. Throughout the 4th century, the tendency continued to grow. Sculptors who worked with success on a contemporary Plato or Aristotle essayed as well to reproduce the features of a man of the near past or of remote persons such as Homer and Sappho. In the latter case, the portraits were necessarily ideal. The statue of Sophocles in the Lateran Museum may be taken as an example of the idealization of a recent character. Shortly after his death, a statue, doubtless realistic, was erected by his son, and in this way the features of the great dramatist were perpetuated. The figure now under consideration, however, aimed to express the brilliance, the power, and the serene poise, rather than any physical peculiarities, of the tragedian. With the establishment of monarchy dawned a new era in portraiture, when Lysippus embodied in bronze the fiery spirit and the superhuman ambition of Alexander. Henceforth, the rulers of mankind were to have their features immortalized, not only in sculpture but on the face of coins, where hitherto the gods alone had enjoyed a place. From what has been said, it is evident that images of persons deserve treatment in a chapter on art. At the same time, a portrait, as a source for the study of character, connects itself most nearly with the activity of the person whom it represents. Appearance of the Corinthian Capital Meanwhile, architecture underwent great changes. The ornate Corinthian capital made its appearance. In a temple at Tegea, Scopus combined the three orders, making the peristyle Doric, the columns of the pronaus Corinthian, and those of the interior Ionic. He infused into the whole his own spirit of unrest. Another new feature of temple building was the high foundation, approached by many steps and designed to give the structure a commanding altitude. 
The element of magnificence, too, was promoted by a double peristyle, as well as by greatly increased size. These were expensive innovations in keeping with the wealth of the Anatolian cities which constructed them. Noteworthy was the Didymaeum, a temple to Apollo at Miletus. It was a hundred years in building, and not even then completed. Mausoleum at Halicarnassus. With the rise of monarchy reappeared gigantic tombs, unknown to Hellas since the Minoan age. Most remarkable was the mausoleum, tomb of Mazolus, satrap and king of Korea. It was situated at Halicarnassus, his capital, and was built and adorned by Greek architects and artists, about 350. The structure was nearly square, 440 feet in perimeter, and was 140 feet in height. On a foundation 42 feet high rested a building of the same altitude, surrounded by an ionic peristyle. Above was a pyramidal roof, on the apex of which stood the colossal figures of the king and his queen Artemisia, beside a chariot and four. Among the sculptures which decorated the tomb is a mutilated frieze representing a battle between Greeks and Amazons. In contrast with the quiet dignity of earlier decorations, this frieze is amazingly bold and spirited in its flying draperies, tense attitudes, and furious movements. The desire for effect is no longer subject to the law of moderation, and Hellenism has begun to suffer from contact with foreign life. Part 2. Literature New Developments from the City-State The central idea in Hellenism, the pivot on which everything Hellenic turns, was the city-state with all its traditional associations, religious, social, and civic. As the idea declined, there emerged from it two others, the individual and the human race, which were now in conflict, now in sympathy. During the period before us, the city-state continued, though weakening, whereas individualism and humanism were growing. These new developments affected every human activity, including war, politics, art, literature, and philosophy. From poetry to prose. In literature, the most obvious change was from poetry to prose. Poetry had devoted itself extensively to the state. The choral songs were chiefly for public occasions, and the drama appealed to the entire community. The decline of these forms of literature meant a changing relation between the individual and the state, a shifting of interest to private and social affairs, and from the emotional life perpetuated by tradition to the life of the reason, which is sufficient unto itself and an enemy of all control. Comedy. Of the lyric and tragic poetry composed in this period, almost nothing has survived. Comedy, poetic in form, though prose in spirit, forsook politics for social life. This change of subject marks the transformation from old to middle comedy, 390 to 320, represented by two extant plays of Aristophanes, the Ecclesia Zeusai and the Plutus, whose contents have been noticed elsewhere. Along with the political spirit, comedy lost its fierce assaults upon prominent persons, its caricatures, gross indecencies, and the high flights of lyric genius. Growing tamer and more realistic, it attempted in quiet humor or good-natured satire to set forth the manners and morals of the age, to picture scenes and characters from actual life. Prose, its three great departments. In this century, as stated above, we have to do mainly with prose, which comprised three great departments, history, oratory, and philosophy. A noticeable feature is the narrow specialization of the authors, involving a strict separation of the fields. 
To us, it is surprising, for example, how little the orator or the philosopher knew of his country's past. Before Aristotle, authors were not learned men, but creative artists. The most liberal field was that of the historian, whose search for the truth made him akin to the scientist, while his rhetoric, soon to gain the mastery over the historical field, brought him into touch with the orator, and at the same time his study of motive and his analysis of government gave him points of contact with the ethical and political philosopher. The historian of broad vision, as heir to Herodotus, composed the annals of Hellas, or of a great part of Hellas, for a definite period. By thus combining in treatment a multitude of city-states, he contributed to the mental preparation for a unified Hellenic nation. At the same time, the growing interest in prominent individuals produced biography. Thus it was that Isocrates, writing to King Nicocles of Cyprus, presented a eulogistic account of the achievements and character of Evagoras, father and predecessor of the person addressed. This is the first Hellenic biography known to us. Xenophon. Undoubtedly this particular work, as well as the general development of individuality, greatly influenced the intellectual attitude of Xenophon, the 4th century historian with whom we have most to do. Xenophon, about 434 to 354, was born in a well-to-do family of pronounced conservative inclinations. From his social environment, he imbibed the sentiments that distinguished his rank, including a punctilious regard for the externals of religion, ethical reflection, refinement of feeling and speech, an interest in military training and in out-of-door sports, courage, a dislike of the multitude and fidelity to his class, in a word, Hellenic chivalry. His attachment to Socrates brought to fruitage the best that was in him, and in fact illuminated his entire life. His memoirs, Memorabilia, of Socrates, faithfully photographs the exterior of the great master and of his teachings, though it fails to penetrate to the depths. In fact, Xenophon is in everything superficial. This work and the Agesilas illustrate his interest in individuals, though we find the same love of biography in all his historical writings. The Anabasis, already mentioned, is chiefly valuable for the insight it affords us into the composition and psychology of a mercenary army, drawn from many parts of Hellas and passing through various phases of success, adversity, peril, and deliverance. The Hellenica, his chief historical work, is a continuation of Thucydides from 411 to 362. The author, banished for treason from his native land, wrote under Lacedaemonian patronage. To his inborn shallowness, accordingly, he has added a partisanship for Sparta and an undue admiration for Agesilas. Among the other works used extensively as sources in this volume are The Constitution of the Lacedaemonians, The Economist, and The Ways and Means. The Cyropedia, Education of Cyrus, is a historical romance in which the author sets forth a model education of the child and youth, whence emerges the ideal man and sovereign. The preservation of this author's works is due to the interest of after ages in Socrates and to a wrong standard of judgment as to style and general worth. In mentioning his shortcomings, however, we should not lose sight of his positive merits. His interest in personal traits, which is totally wanting in Thucydides, but which marks Xenophon as a true child of his age, especially appeals to the modern student of Hellenic life and culture. He had traveled much, had acquired a wide knowledge of the world, 
and in his breadth of mind, his liberal education, and his ethical and religious principles, he represents the best features of the educated class of his generation. The Athedes, Aristotle, Constitution of the Athenians. Xenophon's literary style, subjecting itself to philosophic discipline, betrays almost no influence of the rhetoric which flourished in his day. Akin were the chronicles, whose interest lay in the collection and the systematizing of facts. Such chronicles of Athens were termed Athedes, plural of Athes. They began with the earliest mythical kings, and for the regal period they seem to have grouped events and institutions according to reigns. For the historical period they arranged the material analytically under the appropriate archons. Far from limiting himself to political and military happenings, the athedographer included all kinds of institutional, personal, and cultural matter. The earliest of the class was Xenophon's contemporary, Cledemus, whose Athis evidently was published after 378, but of whose work we have little information. Excepting a few brief fragments, all these Athedes have been lost. To us, the chronicler of greatest interest was Androtion, a prominent statesman of Athens, whose Athis appeared in 330. It was the chief source for Aristotle, Constitution of the Athenians, published a few years afterward. The latter work is one of a collection of a hundred and fifty-eight constitutional histories of states, mostly Hellenic, composed by Aristotle with the collaboration of his pupils. Each history consisted of, one, the narrative of constitutional growth to the philosopher's own time, two, a contemporary survey of the constitution, the treatise on the Athenian constitution, the greater part of which was recovered in Egypt in 1890, is the only one we have of the vast collection. Growth and Influence of Rhetoric, Orations of Lysias and Isaias. In order to take into account not simply the content, but also the artistic form of literature, we must now give attention to the growth and influence of rhetoric. Since the origin of this branch of learning, oratory inevitably came more and more to be composed by set rule and principle. The extant orations of Lysias, however, belonging mainly to the first two decades of the 4th century, show a freshness, vigor, and independence unfettered by rhetorical bonds. Having taken his lessons of the rhetorician, the author preserves his own mastery of style. His oration is artistic, but he has concealed his art. In appearance, his language is that of everyday life. In fact, it is highly idealized. This orator is a model of simple narrative, of dramatic skill in adapting speech to the character of the speaker for whom he professionally writes, of ethos, the gentle current of feeling that wins the sympathy of the hearers. These qualities render his speeches most valuable, not only as pictures of common life, but as psychological views both of the individual litigants and of the multitudinous jury. A similar writer of speeches for others was Isaiah, perhaps also a medic, whose extant productions range nearly through the first half of the century, 390 to 353. They have to do with family law, with cases of adoption and inheritance. In tone less winsome than Lysias, he is more argumentative and militant. On the whole, he clings to the simple Lysian style, while revealing the mere beginnings of the mature, powerful oratory of the Demosthenic age. The twelve speeches which we possess have the same value for Athenian life as those of Lysias. Isocrates and his work. It was in Isocrates of Athens that rhetoric came to full maturity. His life, 
436 to 338, was contemporary with the whole development of prose literature, and with the culmination and incipient decay of the city-state. It was his achievement to mold the oration into a formal work of art, comparable to a Pindaric ode or to a piece of sculpture. With a delicate taste for literary form, he gave the most minute and prolonged attention to the elaboration of a nicely adjusted periodology, and to the exquisite choice and arrangement of words with a view to euphony and rhythm. These qualities are untranslatable. The style is too formal, the periods are too monotonous, for the conveyance of anything more than quiet thought and feeling. Although a few of his orations are judicial, the greater number are in fact essays, for reading rather than for delivery. In these works he set forth the theory and the content of the culture which he upheld, both in his writings and in the school of statesmanship which he conducted. The young man who went forth from his school was to possess a largeness of view which considered the interest, not of his native city alone, but of the entire Hellenic nation, a moral elevation above all self-seeking and ignoble passion, an efficiency of method acquired by long and careful preparation, and an ambition to achieve great and permanent results. As a product of this culture may be mentioned the Panegyricus, his masterpiece, on which he is said to have labored ten years. Its advocacy of Hellenic union was noticed above. While expressing sentiments that might be interpreted as cosmopolitan, his leading political principle of Hellas against Persia shows him at heart a genuine Greek, an exponent of nationalism rather than of humanism. In home politics, he was a conservative who preferred the constitution of Solonian and Cleisthenian times, when the council of the Areopagus kept parental ward over citizens and magistrates, when offices were unpaid and filled by election. These views he set forth in his Areopagiticus. It need hardly be said that reform by such reaction is never wise nor practicable, whereas the writings of this eminent publicist distributed through so long a career and touching Hellenic life on many sides, are valuable to us for the facts they convey and for their interpretation of Greek conditions and character, there can hardly be a doubt that he molded public opinion and directed the general current of intelligence chiefly through his school. In a three- or four-year course, he trained his pupils in oratory and supplied them with the information essential to public careers. They came from all parts of Hellas, from regions as distant as the Black Sea, Cyprus, and Sicily, highly endowed youths from prominent families. Having completed this education, a goodly number became philosophers, rhetoricians, and historians, generals, statesmen, and even kings. Through these men, the culture of Isocrates influenced all the higher walks of life throughout the length and breadth of Hellas. Ephorus. By two of these pupils, Ephorus of Cumae, Aeolus, and Theopompus of Chios, both born about 380, the stream of rhetoric was conducted upon the historical field. The principal work of Ephorus was a universal history in 30 books, from the return of the Heraclidae, Dorian invasion, to the siege of Perinthus, 340, when the narrative was cut short, probably by death. Although it has been lost with the exception of a few fragments, the work is of great interest to us as the chief source on that period for Diodorus and for the historical parts of Strabo the geographer. The author laid claim to critical discrimination and aimed to gain a personal knowledge 
of the geography and topography of the events narrated, but in fact he has often marred his pages with bias or puerility in the treatment of motive, with exaggerations of numbers in military affairs and similar defects. His rhetorical style ran in a smooth but languid current, agreeable to the ear, though monotonous. Theopompus. Theopompus, his schoolmate, was like his master, a writer of speeches on matters of public interest. In the historical field, he composed a Hellenica in twelve books, which continued the work of Thucydides, and a Philippica in fifty-eight books, a detailed history of his own time. In contrast with Ephorus, he was forceful and passionate, and in style more oratorical. The extant fragments, preserved especially in Athenaeus, show a noteworthy interest in society, culture, and character, with a disproportionate love of exhibiting the luxuries and the vices of mankind. In spite of the shortcomings of Ephorus and Theopompus, the finding of the works of either author, especially of the latter, would doubtless greatly enlarge our knowledge of Greek history and civilization. This loss has been brought home to us by the discovery of the fragment of a history known as the Oxyrhynchus Hellenica from the place of finding. It gives a detailed account of the events of 396 and includes a surprisingly interesting digression on the Boeotian federal constitution. Although we have not the means of determining the author, we cannot doubt that the work was distinctly superior to Xenophon's Hellenica. It is composed in a smooth flowing style that reveals the influence of Isocrates, and in this respect it might belong to either Theopompus or Ephorus. Rhetoric dominates the historical field. From the beginnings here described, rhetoric with its attendant ethics soon came to dominate the historical field. It became the function of the historian to contribute through his works to the oratorical and ethical education, particularly of those who wished to enter public life. The form became more important than the content, the moral end more valued than the ascertainment of truth. This was one of various ways in which the ancients, less inclined than moderns to the study of facts, through the lapse of centuries loosened their hold upon reality and slowly degenerated into medievalism. Iskenes and Demosthenes Whereas the professional speechwriter multiplied and distributed his works as examples of his art, the publicist spread his pamphlets abroad for the propagation of his ideas. Meanwhile, a political event acting upon the internal development of literature brought the oratory of Athens to a height of perfection never again attained to the present day, and forced the statesman to disseminate his views through published orations. This event was the growth of the Macedonian power, which throughout eastern Hellas divided public men into two parties, Macedonian and anti-Macedonian, who respectively favored and opposed Philip and Alexander. The relative merits of the two policies need not be considered here. In Athens, as above indicated, the most conspicuous upholder of Philip was Iskenes, the most brilliant opponent Demosthenes. The latter received the especial support of Hyperides and Lycurgus, speakers of high rank and able in the administration of public affairs. The orator of this period, combining his predecessor's resources, employed them with a mastery unknown to earlier time. Advancing beyond Lysias, he boldly revealed his art. To the winsome ethos of that orator, and to the argumentative skill of Isaias, he added on occasions a vehemence that overwhelmed his hearers. In brief, he had learned not only to appeal to reason, but to play upon all the keys of human emotion. It is needless here to characterize the styles of individual orators, 
For all excellences were united and brought to perfection in Demosthenes, the master, not of one but of every style. The son of a well-to-do manufacturer, he was left fatherless in childhood and cheated of his inheritance by perfidious guardians. As he was physically weak, his mother, keeping him by her side, deprived him of the usual gymnastic training. Thus, he grew up in poor health, unsocial, seemingly lacking fitness for active life, and cherishing the one desire for vengeance on those who had wronged him. He qualified himself for oratory that he might prosecute his guardians, and success in this undertaking gave him a reputation as a speechwriter, the foundation of a substantial fortune. Meanwhile, when inspiration came to him to serve his country as a statesman, strength of will surmounted every obstacle. A defective articulation he made good by prolonged training. He steeped his mind in Thucydides, whence chiefly he drew his knowledge of the past and his militant ideal of the state. From Isaiah and Isocrates and many others, he learned useful lessons. For delivery, he took training under a successful actor. Behind this external equipment, all necessary in itself, we discover a literary genius unsurpassed, and a burning patriotism combined with the religious zeal of a prophet, the practical statesman, who in the sweep of his eloquence never fails to point out the concrete way to success, the moral idealist, who by constant appeals to the nobler feelings of his hearers, gradually lifts them to a higher ethical level the champion of local freedom against encroaching despotism, of a high culture against the advance of an inferior civilization. The universalization of Hellenism was not a conscious issue. If Demosthenes opposed the events that contributed to this process, at least he enriched Hellenism by his supreme oratory, and still more by his defense of human freedom, the greatest gift of Hellas to mankind. Part 3. Philosophy. Plato. Plato, the great creative philosopher of the age, was born at Athens in 427 of highly aristocratic parents. A kinsman was Critias, the violent leader of the Thirty. On the overthrow of this oligarchy, the young man thought of entering public life, but the condemnation of Socrates, his revered master, awakened in him an undying hatred of democracy. He could do nothing, therefore, but remain in private life and satisfy his political longings with the creation of ideal constitutions or appeal to a tyrant for the realization of his vision of the perfect state. It was probably in the year 387 that Plato opened in his private house a school called the Academy from its nearness to the public garden of that name. The School of Plato His literary works are dialogues. We know, however, that he considered these writings a popular presentation of such views as, in his opinion, the laity could understand. In his school, he lectured more learnedly on mathematics, astronomy, harmonics, and ethics. In this work, he rightly leaned upon the Pythagoreans, while giving his pupils a fruitful impetus to further mathematical and physical researches. While holding to the end that the earth is the center of the universe— he finally accepted the doctrine of the Earth's rotation on its axis. Following his suggestion, a Pythagorean friend, Eudoxus, attempted to explain the seemingly irregular movements of sun, moon, and planets by a theory of homocentric hollow spheres revolving around the Earth at different velocities. The heavenly bodies, he assumes, are fastened to these spheres. To the sun and moon, he assigns three spheres each, to the five known planets, four spheres each, 
whereas a single sphere suffices for all the fixed stars. Although these spheres are a pure fiction, mathematically they serve their purpose and are therefore a highly ingenious theory. The Dialogues of Plato Of the lectures of Plato, however, we have mere hints. It is upon the dialogues, in addition to the little that can be gathered from his pupil Aristotle, that we must chiefly rely for our knowledge of his views. The dialogue, which had long been a favorite instrument of the philosopher, received from Plato an artistic form. It shows him not a dry reasoner, but a highly imaginative poet. Though prose in form, his language, brilliantly versatile, sparkles with poetic gems. He is gifted, too, with rare dramatic power. The speakers of the dialogues are living persons who everywhere retain their psychological identity. We should not look to his writings for a consistent system of knowledge, for through an active life of 81 years his mind continually developed. During this time he came into contact, or renewed his acquaintance, with existing philosophies, one after another, from each of which he received an enlargement of his mental horizon and a new impetus to creative work. At the basis of his thought lies his doctrine of ideas. Socrates had taught him that the only objects of knowledge are concepts, universal truths established by induction. With Plato, the concept becomes an idea, a word derived from the Pythagoreans and signifying form. Ideas are not forms in the geometrical sense, but are colorless, shapeless, intangible realities, which the mind alone can perceive. In distinction from our ideas, which have their being in the mind alone, those of Plato are objective realities, in fact, the only things that exist. The objects of sense are real insofar only as they partake of these pure realities. Plato's Ethics Plato's chief concern was with ethics. The greatest of all ideas, he taught, is God, who created the world and gave to it a soul, through which reason and order and life came into all things. At his command, the lesser gods fashioned the body of man, and he himself prepared the soul, making it of the same substance as the world's soul, though less pure. Each human soul is given a star to which it will return after having completed a good life on earth, but the soul that has lived badly will at the next birth enter an inferior creature. This theory of creation and of human life is presented not as a dogma, but as a mere approximation of the truth, a metaphor continually varied throughout his writings. By means of education, man advances toward the highest good, which is neither knowledge nor happiness, but the utmost likeness to God. Happiness, altogether different from bodily pleasure, is the possession of the good. In Plato's doctrine, taken from the Orphis, the body is merely the dungeon or the tomb of the soul. From the body, the soul must purify itself in order to attain to the good and to virtue, which is the fitness of the soul for its proper work. Plato's Republic An important division of ethics is politics. In the view of Plato, the state is not the all-in-all -all of the citizen as it had been in former time. The calm existence of the philosopher, the solving of the problems of the essential and the eternal, is a nobler being than that of the politician. The body only of the philosopher lives in the state, while his soul dwells elsewhere untouched by political ambition. This is true of a community like Athens, he asserts, governed by the ignorant majority, whose greatest statesman, 
Pericles, Chemon, Miltiades, and Themistocles utterly have failed in the function of improving the character of the citizens. It would be quite otherwise with a state philosophically organized, like that set forth in his Republic. As any state is an individual writ large, the ideal state is constituted like a perfect individual with the baser parts subordinate to the nobler. In this ideal community, there are to be three social classes, the laborers, the soldiers, and the rulers, the last two constituting the guardians. These elements are borrowed from the actual Hellenic world. Evidently, the laborers on the farm and in the trades are Helots and Periochi. The soldiers are the Spartan warriors, whereas the philosophic rulers look to the Pythagoreans as their prototype. The lowest class is intellectually least endowed and fit for nothing but manual labor. Their virtue, like that of the soul's lowest faculty, is obedience to the higher powers. The middle class are the warriors, whose virtue is courage. They ply no manual work, but devote their lives to their special function. It is upon them and the ruling class that Plato bestows his chief attention. These gradations, however, are not castes, but each is formed by a careful selection from the class just below, so that men are constantly rising from the lower to the higher grades of society. Praiseworthy are the assignment of rank according to capacity, the division of labor which makes for efficiency, and the abolition of slavery. The education of guardians is to begin at birth. All who have infants in charge are to see that every act performed and every word spoken in the child's presence shall be such as will contribute to the right growth of character. From seven to seventeen, he pursues elementary studies, reading, writing, the lower mathematics, gymnastics, and music, including literature. Most of the poets, along with Homer, are rejected because they suggest immoral or irreligious views. Nothing but the strengthening and the ennobling is acceptable. From 17 to 20, the youth has his preliminary training in arms. At this period, it is determined who are to be warriors and who are to continue the intellectual education essential to statesmen. From 20 to 30, the latter class are to devote themselves to the thorough study of the sciences. If incapable of advancing farther, they enter public life as minor officials, whereas the few who are better gifted devote five additional years to the study of ideas. From 35 to 50, these intellectuals govern the state, after which they retire to a life of higher philosophic thought. In planning for an advanced intellectual education carefully regulated, Plato made one of his greatest contributions to civilization, that the guardians, both warriors and statesmen, may devote themselves unselfishly and untrammeled to their functions, individual wealth and the family itself are abolished. Property is held in common, and the mating of men and women is managed by the state with an eye single to the birth of strong, healthful children. Eugenics is pushed to extremes. Women, relieved of the care of children, are to have the same training as men and to perform the same military and political services. Even if such a state were capable of realization, it is too unnatural a thing to bring good results. From the first, Plato saw that no community would voluntarily adopt it, and in his old age substituted a more workable political system in one of his latest writings, the laws. The chief value of the republic lies in its individual suggestions as to educational, social, and political reforms, 
and in the powerful impetus it gives to the intellectual life of the reader. In brief, it is not the knowledge discovered by Plato, but his belief in spiritual realities, his aspiration to the beautiful, the good, and the true, his conception of the vast heights attainable by man that place him among the most powerful intellectual and moral forces that operate upon the human race. Aristotle, the pupil of Plato. After the death of its founder, the academy continued under other masters and gradually degenerated. Meanwhile, the creative and organizing activities within the philosophic field were carried on with greater success by others. The real heir to Plato was his most brilliant pupil, Aristotle, 384 to 322, from Stagirus Chalcides. Twenty years he studied under Plato. Three years, 343 to 40, he was a teacher of Alexander, the young Macedonian prince. Still later, he returned to Athens and established a school of his own named the Lyceum, after the famous gymnasium in which he taught. His system of thought is also described as peripatetic, from the circumstance that he walked, peripatean, with his pupils while giving instruction. Aristotle's Dialogues His dialogues, which were popular like those of Plato, have been lost. But most of his technical works, corresponding to Plato's lectures, are extant. Among them, however, are studies either finished or wholly composed by his pupils, which we cannot, with certainty in every case, distinguish from writings exclusively his own. Aristotle the Scholar In Aristotle we discover a new type of mind, that of the scholar as distinguished from the essentially creative intelligence. It is true that he was himself a discoverer, but his great achievement was to systematize and reduce to writing the knowledge which the Hellenes had thus far accumulated. Accepting in the main the method and system of Plato, he made corrections in detail, and with his more logical mind and a greater command of facts, he was able to render the method more precise and to widen the field of scientific thought. In this task, he discovered that the most insignificant fact of nature is worthy of attention as the potential source of valuable knowledge. In general, he was less concerned with abstract reasoning than Plato, and more with observation and experience. The work of scientific experimentation, however, was then in its infancy, and the observer was hampered by a lack of instruments. The remarkable thing is that with his limitations, he was able to accomplish so much. Divisions of Knowledge The main divisions of knowledge in his classification are logic, metaphysics, natural history, and ethics. Under the head of metaphysics, he places his first philosophy, universal principles on which everything else is based. Natural history includes physics and astronomy, as well as psychology and physiology, zoology, botany, and other studies of nature. Rhetoric and politics are branches of ethics. A fifth department of knowledge may be described as a philosophy of art, represented by his poetics. Mathematics he did not cultivate as an independent study. In logic, he completed a system of proof begun by Socrates. From particulars, he rises to universals by induction, as the earlier philosopher taught. From principles, he reasons back to particulars by the process of deduction through the syllogism, a formula of reasoning first clearly set forth by himself. Nature Study Despite his considerable study of nature, the least valuable parts of his system are those which depend upon observation rather than upon abstract thought. This fact is illustrated by his astronomy, 
a system of the universe cruder, perhaps, than that of Eudoxus described above. The collection of material for his study of plants and animals was probably facilitated by Alexander, though we are certain that no systematic gathering accompanied the marches of the conqueror. That Aristotle made many mistakes in describing animals he had never seen was inevitable, and we need not be surprised to find him in error as to the functions of some of the most vital organs. Flesh, he supposed, is the medium of sensation. Chief of all organs is the heart, which prepares the blood and aids in motion and sensation. The blood, purified by the heart, flows from thence to the various parts of the body, whereas the brain serves to cool the blood and moderate the heat arising from the heart. The study of plants begun by him was carried farther and ultimately published by Theophrastus, his successor. Most interesting is Aristotle's theory as to progress made by the creative power of nature. Beginning with the lowest forms of life, she gradually passes to the higher. Having fashioned the plants, she proceeds to the invention of animals, and thence to men. This process is an evolution, not of organic nature itself, but of the creative power. The Ethics of Aristotle Whereas Plato gives inspiration, Aristotle conveys knowledge. The one soars above the clouds, the other keeps his feet firmly on earth. In his ethics, as elsewhere, Aristotle appeals more strongly to the average man. Casting aside the dictum of Socrates and Plato, that knowledge is virtue, he recognizes that a man may know the right, but have too weak a will to do it. Useful are only those thoughts that lead to useful actions, and happiness, the supreme good, is nothing more than good and efficient life regulated by right rules of conduct. It is the function of ethics to supply these rules. Pleasures which involve mere self-indulgence are wholly bad. Others, arising from the normal exercise of any faculty, though not ends in themselves, are desirable. Although well-being, including health, wealth, friends, and family, are helpful to the cultivation of virtue, they are not essential, and a philosopher may draw strength from illness and poverty. The Politics of Aristotle No man liveth unto himself is one of the strongest tenets of this philosopher. Personal affections within and outside the family and kin constitute friendship. True friendship, involving a love of the good qualities discoverable in the friend and an unselfish desire to benefit, is one of the most powerful moral forces in society. A broadening of friendship brings us to the common life of the community. Man is a political animal, and his highest existence is in the state. The aim of the state is not simply the protection of the life and property of the citizens, but their education to the highest reach of moral and spiritual fitness. In the politics, the author does not seek the ideal state. His aim, rather, is to determine the nature of the state in all the varieties furnished by the Hellenic world, to discover the constitution best adapted to every typical community, to ascertain defects of various political systems and remedies for them. His task in brief is to create a political science on the basis of induction from actual conditions furnished by a multitude of city-states, chiefly Hellenic, but including a few foreign cities like Carthage. As the politics is extensively quoted in another chapter, it requires no lengthy treatment here. Despite incompleteness and an imperfect text, it is the greatest contribution to political and social science made by the ancient world. End of chapter 26